Father, remind us of, uh, of the blessing it is to have mothers, those of us who do. And I didn't share in celebrations, but I praise God for uh, my, my wife, the mother of our, our boys, and my mum, still uh, both watching together a just this morning. And also for this church, which I could count as my mother church, as I was dedicated and brought up in this church many years ago. Talking of my mum, she loves word games. I don't know how many of you do those in the echo, the, uh, the um, code word and the, the word wheel. Um, but uh, uh, she likes Scrabble. I think she set up, helped to set up the Scrabble club here that's developed and evolved into something else. But she uh, is very keen on words. Now, I don't know whether you've got into the current craze. A Welsh-born chap called Josh Wardle invented a game during lockdown, a craze which has rapidly spread the nations, swept the nations. And he recently made his fortune by selling his idea to the New York Times for an undisclosed sum reputed to be seven figures. Today we know Mr Wardle's game as Wordle, the strangely addictive, frustrating, yet satisfying daily quiz challenge where you have to guess a five-letter word. And you get six goes to do it. And we're not going to play it now, so, um, but what I've, it's got me thinking that uh, our points today, I want to be... Five-letter words, those things. The, the topic I've been given and the passage I've been given uh, are fascinating in themselves, but I doubt I'm going to do it justice. You see, doubt is the first, um, the first word, the first one that we want to, to talk about. Because, let me say, we Christianity isn't true because we believe it. We believe it because it's true. Remember that when you have doubts. And it's not... I want to explain a little bit that don't beat yourself up over, over having doubts about the Christian faith. One headline that caught my eye in the Christian press earlier this month read, Doubt is becoming trendy, even among Christians. And there's much talk of deconstructing your faith and Christians embracing the view that doubt is not only to be welcomed, but to be encouraged and nurtured. And the Christian writer, one Chris Shura, suggested that while it is healthy to ask questions, we should nevertheless hold on to the timeless truths of Christianity and stand firm, as we've been singing, stand in the basics of our belief, that is, in the faith once delivered to the saints. But doubt is something that almost all of us struggle with at some point in our lives, and we can feel guilty about it. Guilt's a wasted emotion, someone said. But there's some things that uh, we need to, to understand about doubt. Now, well, you might not all be able to write a book about doubt, and there are very few on the market, but this is one that made a real impact on me some years ago. It's by the, uh, the theologian and thinker Os Guinness, 
and wrote it, wrote it back in the 90s, entitled Doubt, Faith in Two Minds, although I believe it's been reprinted under the, the title God in the Dark. But in it, he reminds us that the very word doubt is rooted in the concept of two. To believe is to be single-minded about accepting something, and unbelief is to be single-minded about rejecting it, then to doubt is to waver between the two, to be in two minds or double-minded. That can lead to instability, if not resolved. But it's a, it's a challenge sometimes to, uh, to not wrestle with these issues, to not struggle with them. An, un, an unthinking Christian is, should be a contradiction in terms Yet we often mistake doubt for unbelief. That's very different. Doubt is healthy. It's only when it's unresolved that it's dangerous and hardens into unbelief. And then it can be deadly. And Guinness likens doubt to an amber traffic light. A temporary state that can lead one way or the other. It can cause our faith to stop, to stagnate and ultimately to die. Or it can lead to the green. It can lead to go. It can allow our faith to progress. And we're reminded uh, by him that faith isn't the opposite of doubt. Unbelief is. In the same way that fear is not the opposite of courage. Cowardice is. You see, fear, rightly used, can enable courage to flourish. And doubt, correctly resolved, can enable faith to flourish, bringing a renewed confidence in the Christian gospel. I'll take another example, also taken from the, from the book, uh, of uh, jigsaw puzzles. My mum likes jigsaws, don't you, mum? And uh, you imagine a young boy doing a jigsaw, getting really frustrated because they put some bits in the wrong place. And they're absolutely convinced that they can't match the picture on the on the box and and we're a bit like that with our doubts each doubt makes us feel like we've found a problem with God and we can't make sense of it all but shake the pieces up a bit rearrange the ones we put in the wrong place and you soon find out that everything changes the fault is not with the puzzle it's not with the picture on the box it's with the child and I would suggest that's the case with us because the problem of doubt is ultimately not a, not a matter of our faith, but of God's faithfulness. The answer does not ultimately depend upon us, our reasoning, but on God's faithfulness. And so we should hand our doubts over to God. Easier said than done, I recognise. Doubts can strengthen faith. At the, at the risk of re-preaching his book he, he does uh, I reread it and, uh, and he's, he's put like seven categories, families of, of faith and I'll, I'll just quickly say there are different just to give you a flavour to a taste of doubts can spring from different places, from ingratitude or from uh, wounds from old scars so we have a fear to believe from a lack of growth from our unruly emotions. 
But perhaps the mother of doubts, the mother of sins, is weak foundations and a lack of commitment. Often if we, we haven't thought it through when we come to faith. You find this, don't you, with young people when they go off to, to university or to college where they haven't grappled perhaps with the faith that they've drifted through, the, through life with. And then when their faith comes under attack, they, they're not well equipped to deal with that. Um, it's it's a, a difficult one to do for someone else, and it's something that, with hindsight, you can you can uh, learn from and perhaps share with others. But uh, I, I came across this. Uh, I think this fits now. It's in my mind anyway. I came across one of my favourite poems. One of my favourite authors, Adrian Plass, of when I became a Christian, and I'm thought or seen this for years but it came to mind and I I looked it up and it says this and just think about that whole area of of commitment thinking things through before we commit ourselves to Christ when I became a Christian when I became a Christian I said Lord now fill me in tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin he said your body may be killed and left to rot and stink do you still want to follow me I said, Amen, I think. I think, Amen, Amen, I think, I think I say, Amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say, my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say, Amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with the sneers and the scorn and spit, do you still want to follow me? I said, Amen. A bit. A bit, Amen. Amen, a bit, a bit, I say, Amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit? Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say, Amen. A bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while and tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, Amen. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say Amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say Amen. Tomorrow. He said, Look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, Amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord. I said I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down. 
Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. I also said, I'm frightened, Lord. I also say, amen. Commitment is a good antidote to doubt. That's why one of the reasons why baptism is so important. Baptism by immersion. I said I was dedicated, and that's very similar to, to infant baptism in some ways. But as uh, believers in, in baptism by immersion, it's that time where you've thought it through. You're nailing your colours to the mast. You're saying, whatever age you are, yes, I've considered this, and I give my life to Jesus for the rest of my days. And that's a powerful statement, and that's something we can look back on as well. As, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time with people in their older years who, who've doubted their faith in different ways. And it's always good to be able to point back to a place of commitment. And that's why it helps if you've thought it through. And if maybe, you know, some people come to faith through a crisis and they, haven't, they don't know, you haven't got the luxury or need the luxury of going through all the different um, apologetics for and uh, arguments with the Christian faith. But at some point we need to, uh, to grapple with these issues of doubt. Above all, as with the character we often refer to as Doubting Thomas, it's a personal encounter with the risen saviour that radically transforms and resolves doubts in a powerful, positive, permanent way. I'll get on to Naaman in a minute, won't I? But his, <coughs> there's a five-letter word in Naaman's chief problem. I see it not so much as doubt as as pride, actually, but let's just recap the story as detailed. Here's a king. Uh, in, sorry, can't read my writing. Here's in two kings. We're introduced to a man named Naaman. He's not from Israel and doesn't know the one true God. This important man was a leader, a commander, and he seemed to have everything going for him. Notice four positive statements in the opening verse that he read to us. Naaman's described as a great man, as highly regarded, as victorious in battle, as a valiant soldier, and the Amplified Version says a, a mighty man of valour, brave, fearless fighter. But, and here's the thing, he had leprosy. Still a very serious condition today, though there are many treatments which just weren't around back in those Bible times. A horrible skin condition, generally starting out with red spots on a person's skin, turning to white splotches all over the body. The skin begins to eat away at itself, basically rotting while you're alive, leaving open wounds and scars, leading to loss of fingers, toes, even the face would deform Eventually, the person with leprosy would die. Sentence of death, really. A terminal disease was also incredibly contagious. Never mind two metres social distancing. Lepers were banished, destined to be outcasts, isolated and destitute for the rest of their lives. So even though Naaman was at the top of his game, seemed to have it all, it was about to come crashing down for leprosy with a devastating disease. 
Now bear in mind in the context, and I'm glad you've mentioned Putin, because you've got to try and say, although this was many years ago in a different context, human nature doesn't change, does it? And some of these things are so relevant for today. Naaman was an enemy. His soldiers fought against Israel. They captured people, brought them back to Syria as slaves. And one of those slaves was a young girl. How wicked is that? We don't know much about her. We don't even know her name. She'd been kidnapped, captured, trafficked, I suppose, sold into slavery, victim of slavery. This young per- person was from Israel. And although most in Israel at that time were rebellious against God, this girl knew her God for herself. And although she'd had that devastating experience of being forcibly removed from her home and family, she knew that God had a plan for her life. She was being given an opportunity to share God's love with those who don't know him. And one of the upsides, if you want to put it like that, one of the opportunities with the refugees flooding around is an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. I'm not saying that makes up for all the evil, but it's turning around the question rather than why, 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 as to what. What can we do? What can we do in response? And this girl apparently didn't wallow in, her, in self-pity or wish that Naaman ill. She took the opportunity. And God has an amazing way throughout the Bible of working his purposes out. And as a young girl, of all the slaves taken out of the land of Israel, this young girl became the servant of Naaman's wife. And she must have sensed the sadness and worry in the home because of Naaman's leprosy. I struggle to make too many direct links with Mothering Sunday, but you can just imagine that sort of motherly approach, that the child going almost to her mistress and and, and talking openly. And this apparently worthless, nameless, unimportant, powerless young girl had an opportunity to realise that God can work, as Paul says in, in Romans eight twenty eight, all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. She had a chance to show God's love to others. And she says, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure cure him of his leprosy. She knew that Elisha was God's man and she wanted to use her circumstances, however difficult, to speak of her God. Naaman's wife told him what the servant girl told her. Naaman then went to the king of Syria and told him what the girl had said. The king loved Naaman and must have been very concerned with this disease. He wanted his best commander to to be well after all and continue in charge of the army. So he said, by all means go and I'll send that letter to the king of Israel. He wrote the letter and gave it to Naaman. And Naaman took that letter and brought gifts of his own to give to the one who could make him well. And he took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. In our day, that's been valued by one Bible commentator as in excess of a million pounds. This wasn't Mother's Day presents for most of us. But uh, it was a, uh, an indication that he wanted to reward the person who could 
change his life. Naaman arrives in Israel, taking the letter from the king of Syria, gives it to the king of Israel. And when he reads the letter, he's disturbed. He didn't have the power to cure anyone. He wasn't God. Do we feel like that sometimes? We have the possibility to pray to the one who can change the situation, but we can't cure anyone. This guy reckoned that his enemy was trying to pick a fight with him, and it is hard not to relate this to the current situation in Ukraine. The king of Israel didn't have a good relationship with Elisha, God's man. This particular king was the son of Ahab and the infamous Jezebel. His name was Jehoram, abbreviated to Joram in some places, a bad monarch, if not quite as evil as his parents. He got rid of some of the things that caused God's people to worship Baal, but they still sinned against God. Anyway, the king was so distraught, he tears his clothes, and someone who saw this event take place took the news to Elisha. And when he heard about the king of Israel, the letter, and Naaman the leper, he sent for Naaman and wanted him to know there was still a prophet in Israel. Naaman and his servants, travelling with him, came to the place where Elisha was staying. They must have heard the noise, looked out of the window, and saw Naaman had arrived. It seems as though Elisha would have come outside and greeted Naaman and given him these instructions to be healed. But that's not what he did. God's ways are not our man's ways. He sent someone outside with the message, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. If you were Naaman, what would you do? Naaman looked at the messenger and turned away in a rage. He doubted it. You must be joking. He's furious. He had it all figured out. He thought that something, he'd have to do something fancy. And he knew that the Jordan River was a disgusting, dirty river. And he said, I've got better rivers back home. His doubt and his pride nearly robbed him of God's blessing. See, pride comes before a fall. We often misquote the scripture. Pride, it's a haughty spirit. Pride comes before destruction. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. As I said, it's almost like the mother of sins, that wanting our own way. Naaman's servants had an opportunity, though, at this time, just like the servant girl earlier. They could let their master blow his top, storm off, and go back as diseased as when he got there. Or they could get involved. And that's exactly what they did. Took a risk, went back to him, and explained, well... You know, think about it. Think this through. And they calmed him down. And can you think of an occasion when somebody offered you some godly advice? may not be what you wanted to hear, but it's what you needed to hear. When someone puts themselves out to speak the truth in love, however blunt that may be, it can be valuable. And this great mighty warrior used to being honoured would have to humble himself and do something unexpected. He had a choice. If you were Naaman, and thankfully for him, Naaman chose to humble himself, to go down into the Jordan. And seven times into the murky, muddy waters he went. And the seventh time up, 
His flesh was healed and restored as a young boy's skin. Smooth as a baby's bottom, we might say these days. You mums, perhaps you can think back when your baby was tiny. And uh, those precious bath times. When they get older, it's not so easy to get them in the bath, is it? But, uh, um, but he had to, Naaman had to humble himself. It was a great preacher, D.L. Moody, who said of Naaman, he lost his temper, he lost his pride, and then he lost his leprosy. And that's the case today, very often. If someone reacts angrily when you share the gospel, be encouraged, a passionate, even a violent response to the challenge of God is sometimes the prelude to a powerful conversion. Indifference, a lukewarm reaction, is much more difficult to deal with. Because sometimes the heart is hardened to the message of God. But that reaction is, is the pride, it's the, it's the individual person comes to the fore. And it's true that in order to give our lives to Jesus, we have to humble ourselves, to become like a child and to receive him. Bible scholars will tell you the number seven is a symbol of perfection. The number of times that uh, Naaman had to go down into the water and uh, God's perfect number from the seven days of creation to the many sevens in Revelation It's uh, associated with ideas of completion and perfection, health and healing, the fulfilment of promises and and oaths. And there may well be something in that, but it's clear above all else that Naaman's obedience brought blessing. His humility led to his healing. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Elisha's predecessor, the prophet Elijah, is directly named around 30 times, whereas Elisha's named but once, in Luke 4.27, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. You see, it was Naaman's faith which made the difference, and it's the same today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And God's gracious gifts always are a cause for thankfulness and rejoicing. Naaman, with his entourage, go back to see Elisha to thank him for what he's done. Reminds me of the ten lepers that Jesus healed in the Gospels. Remember, ten were healed? But only one went back to say thank you, and that was a non-Jew, a person outside of, supposedly, the covenant, the promises of God. And here in our Old Testament passage is another Gentile doing the same. Naaman wanted to give Elisha the gifts he'd brought, He stood before God's prophet and said, Now I know there is no God in the entire world except in Israel, except the gift from your servant. And Elisha, though, wanted this man to fully understand it was God who did the healing. And so he wouldn't take gifts for something that God had done. Despite urging, Elisha still said no. And there's an interesting couple of verses tucked away at the end of the portion. and We didn't complete the, the chapter, but... There was a verses 17 and 18 probably need a bit of explaining about taking away the the earth to worth. Um, if you don't accept anything, says Naaman, um, please let me be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. And then he says, but please forgive your servant for 
for when my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow also, may the Lord forgive your servant. You see, he realised with a quite a quite a, a amount of insight that there were consequences to his actions. And he was always feeling guilty, thinking ahead of what it, of what it would have affected, how it would affect him. This proud, important man who initially refused to bathe in the River Jordan because it was too muddy and dirty, now ironically loads two bags of local earth, dirt, onto his mule to worship his new god back in his hometown. And the idea of a god being territorial was, was very prevalent in those days. And it's interesting the prophet doesn't challenge Naaman's false assumptions immediately following his sincere conversion. You see, only he has to apologise in advance for carrying out his essential work duties will necessarily involve the appearance of worshipping a false god. Notice how Elisha recognises Naaman's trust and his faith were genuine. This sympathetic response, go in peace. And if you're a new believer, or even a more established one, know that God alone is the one you're accountable to. That's not an excuse for doing what you like, but you're not judged by others. You're judged by the one who knows your heart through and through. So don't beat yourselves up if there's occasions where you can't do exactly what you'd like to do. And if we'd had the opportunity to complete this uh, this chapter, we'd have seen that uh, another man comes into the into the fray, who's Elisha's um, servant Gehazi or Gehazi, who actually is a very greedy man. That's why you'll see greed up there somewhere. But he he was um, he thinks there's an opportunity missed with this gift. You know, so he goes back and says, oh, my master's changed his mind and, and uh, gets some money. But uh, unfortunately for him, he, he hasn't reckoned with the God who says, be sure your sins will find you out. And ultimately that leprosy becomes the punishment for the one who refuses to acknowledge God. But sin is, a, is alluded to in this whole idea of leprosy. It's a disease that we're all born with. Those in the Bible who had leprosy were separated from the people they loved because the disease was so serious. Our sin separates us from God. We cannot have a relationship with him or go to heaven when we die if we have sin in our lives. And just as the slave girl pointed Naaman to Elisha, uh, so we may have someone who points us to the Lord, to God's man, Jesus Christ, the perfect son who never sinned, who died upon the cross for every woman, man, girl and boy. Jesus was placed in a tomb and three days later God raised him from the dead. When we recognise we have a sin problem, we can come to God. By believing in Jesus. And when we believe in him, we say that he died not just for the sins of the world, but for the sins of us. There is no other way but God's way. 
Can't I just be good, do my best, read my Bible, pray to the universe? Well, just as Naaman's servants urged him to do what Elisha said, I'm encouraging you to do what the Bible says. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit your life to him. Receive him to be saved. Nothing else will take away your sins. Don't be deceived, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But on this Mothering Sunday, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's our sixth and final word. If it's a case of greed and pride and doubt need to be transformed by faith and trust, it's faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one person who can resolve our doubts, who can bring salvation, can bring hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Naaman learnt there was a true God who loved and cared for him. Let us recognise that that same God speaks to us, the other side of the cross, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who can turn our greatest test into a great testimony who can turn our mess into his message. When we know him and trust him, we can go in peace this day and always God bless you.